Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. This is a special end-of-year roundup of some of my favourite moments from a podcast of one's own. Making a podcast series has been such a wonderful experience. I've met some amazing women, all pushing for gender equality and rallying for change in the workplace, at home, in politics and in society. Guests have included the hilarious UK comedian and presenter, Sandy Toxvig, fellow Australian politician, Tanya Plibersek, community justice campaigner, Yvette Williams, and most recently, Hillary Clinton. They've all shared stories of courage and resilience, fighting for their beliefs, breaking glass ceilings, and pushing through barriers to make it as leaders and trailblazers in their fields. They've also shared some of the frustrating, disheartening, painful and even ridiculous experiences of sexism and misogyny they've faced, all the while providing insight and advice on how we smash stereotypes and campaign for a gender-equal world. I hope hearing these gems of wit, warmth and wisdom will inspire you to go back and listen to the episodes you've missed so far. I also want to take this opportunity to thank you for supporting my first ever podcast series and I hope you'll stick with me as we continue this journey together in the new year. Let's start at the very beginning with the first episode we released. We featured British comedian and equality campaigner Sandy Toxvig. You may know her from BBC quiz show QI or the delicious Great British Bake Off. Sandy spoke about the underrepresentation of women in comedy, as well as sharing how terrifying it was to come out as a lesbian while so publicly well known. Although it often feels like progress is slow, this clip about what Sandy had to endure from male colleagues and audiences in the 1980s reminds us that we have made some headway. You're talking about the uh, the 80s, uh, the uh, mid mid to late 80s, and if you were on a comedy bill as a woman, you would be the only woman. Uh, there was I don't know what happened. I don't know what they were worried about. If there was two of us, the our cycles would collide and we'd become bad tempered during the show. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. Um, and uh, the Comedy Store, which was the first sort of major comedy club here in London, um, they didn't have a, a a loo for the for the turns for the comedians so there was just a sink in the corner of the dressing room and all the boys used to relieve themselves in the sink and that's because it had never occurred to them that a woman might turn up 
and need to be relieved. Right. And I was expected to go through the crowd and the queue and go and be with the public uh, and use the facilities there. So so the, even the basics of making you feel comfortable as a young woman uh, on stage were not there. And then uh, pretty much if there was a scene with the, you know, say a doctor and a nurse, the boys would immediately presume that you're going to play the nurse. Mm. And it would get very... I would always try and get in first. If they, I knew it was a scene with a doctor and a nurse, I'd try and jump on the stage straight away and say to the boys, so, nurse, could you go and get me a, you know, a scalpel or something? So they established really quickly that they're not going to play the nurse in this book. But you, so you fought... You fought even within the scenes that the improvised scenes that you were doing, uh, and how many times have I stood on stage and remember the audience shouted, "Show us your tits!" Or you know, mm. any of this, you just think, "Oh wow, okay." Mm. Uh, you know, and if you ask for it, can I have an unusual occupation, please? Always, always, as a woman, you'd get gynaecologist, and then a big laugh from the men in the audience. Right. And it's just, it was yeah. just, you just, yeah, it's that sigh. And a lot of women gave up because they sighed at about midnight when they were being asked to show their cleavage to somebody, mm. and thought, you know, I could be at home. And we lost a lot of great early talent who just couldn't do that, couldn't keep up with the pressure of being shouted at. Sandy clearly had a lot of resilience to stay put and stand her ground in the comedy world. And thank goodness, or we wouldn't have her as the British national treasure she is today. Speaking of resilience and staying put, I want to share some heartening words from the courageous BBC journalist, Carrie Gracie. If you don't know her story... She resigned from her post as China editor after discovering her male equivalent was being paid almost twice as much as her. What followed was a stressful battle against her employer to get them to acknowledge that she was worth as much as a man. Here she describes the solidarity between women BBC employees, which she terms the hive heart and hive mind. Yeah, it's kind of a hive mind and a hive heart. The hive mind is absolutely crucial because one of the things that makes it hard for women to see the facts on pay is the secrecy that we were talking about a moment ago. And many employers guard pay data very closely, precisely so that employees can't do that compare and contrast thing amongst themselves. And I'm not saying... I don't understand employers' reasons for doing that, but obviously it's not helpful to the question of equal pay because it doesn't allow the kind of transparency which gives women an opportunity to see where the gaps are not justified. Because we had this hive mind, we shared our information. And from sharing our information, we could build our own sense of the patterns that were in operation. And that meant that when your line manager or boss or grievance hearing manager said, well, you know, we're paying him more because this skill that he has or that experience that he has is worth more than the other skill that you have or the other experience that you have. We knew that on the other side of the pitch, they were paying a man more for precisely the skill that the woman had or the experience that the women had. So we could start dismantling the defences for unequal pay due to that hive mind. And the hive heart that I mentioned is vital too, because I do think coming back to the experience of being gaslit and belittled is very overwhelming for an individual. But if you have a group of comrades and sisters fighting it together, you can help to hold up the mirror to each other. And you can believe, you know, that, you yourself 
are rubbish because if you're told it enough times and you've been told it enough times in your career that you're worth less than a man, then you can, in your moments of weakness, believe that. But if you see the management say it of someone you know is brilliant, you know, you're not emotionally invested in your own low self-esteem then you know it's rubbish and you just feel indignant on her behalf and you say to her, you're not rubbish, they're talking nonsense, get out and fight your fight. And if you're all doing it for each other, then the fight is stronger. One of the reasons, which Carrie talks about in her episode, that women often do get undervalued in the workplace is due to conscious and unconscious bias, which presupposes that it's the role of women to be the main carer in their family. One woman who's refused to be pigeonholed in the heavily male-dominated world of finance is top British businesswoman Helena Morrissey. She made it to the top, juggling a super high-pressured job with a family of nine, yes, nine children. It does help. She has a stay-at-home husband. It sounds so trite, really, but I have learnt by taking... I used to panic much more about lots of things and feel overwhelmed, and I learnt that actually... By sort of taking things one step at a time, much easier said than done, but really trying to fight the natural tendency that I think we have to sort of try to overthink, you know, the next step and the next step and how am I going to cope? And we use a lot of negative energy, I think, on just all the things that might go wrong rather than sort of dealing in the here and the now. So that has helped. And I guess also the reality is that I have a stay-at-home husband. Uh, not always the case. We had our fourth child before... He became a stay-at-home father and husband, and that has made, obviously, a huge difference. And one of my hopes, I suppose, is that the world of work will become, the world of family life um, will become much more interchangeable for men and women, and that it's not so unusual, not necessarily completely quitting your job, but sharing in family as well as work. And for him, uh, deciding to take the stay-at-home parent role, were there stereotypes that he found hard? I mean, that would have been very unusual. I mean, it's still unusual today, but even more unusual when you first jointly took that decision. How does he remember those days? Well, he always, and he won't mind me saying this, you know, felt very confident in his masculinity, you know, and he was quite happy to, in one sense. But he hated being asked, you know, school gates or dinner parties or just casual conversation, oh, what is it that you do? Because it would floor people. The answer, oh, actually, I'm staying at home, bringing up the children. People would sort of shuffle and look embarrassed and, you know, move away. And they didn't know how to sort of pigeonhole him, which shows us something about us human beings. We don't really need to pigeonhole people, do we? We can have a conversation, get to know them. And he's also very intellectual. You know, he got a first-class degree in philosophy, and law degree, and so that has been, I think, a slight frustration for him. But he says he loves what he does, and I think he has done something really amazing. You know, we have nine mostly happy, most of the time, children. <laughs> and, you know, that is a very big thing to have done, and I think he feels genuinely proud, and he should do, of having done that. We absolutely need to keep smashing these stereotypes which limit women and men from living their lives and being the people they want to be. Someone who's very good at this is Australian author and a dear friend of mine, Cathy Lett, whose funny feminist literature turns many of our culturally accepted norms on their head, including the myth of the perfect mother. Here I talk to her about how we can use literature to share feminist messages as well as support women. 
reminding them that they're not alone in the many struggles they face. All you want to do as a, as a writer is help other women know they're not alone. Because I remember when I wrote Mad Cows, I wanted to take the idea that motherhood was the ultimate fulfilment for a female, that great big sacred cow, and whack it on the Barbie. Because it's really hard yakka, motherhood. I mean, people used to say to me all the time, oh, isn't the time going so quickly? And I'd think, no, it's going really, really slowly. Some days I was so bored doing creative things with Play-Doh, I could see my plants engaging in photosynthesis, right? <laughs> One day I grew a yeast infection as a change of pace. And every day I was tempted to put the kids under the sink and the lethal household substances within my own reach. <laughs> but I kept meeting these other mothers who just sort of seemed being so perfect. So when I wrote Mad Cows, I thought maybe I'm the only mother who doesn't cope all the time. I don't think that now. I think any mother who says she copes all the time is either lying or taking a lot of drugs. <laughs> and that book did go on to be the biggest international success of my career. So I was right to follow my instincts. And I don't think women pretend anymore to be perfect mothers. And I think that book did kickstart a whole genre, which we now call mummy lit. But I do think a lot of women still pretend to have perfect marriages. I mean, just look at Instagram. Mm. And that's just a whole other pressure on women to sort of live up to this idea of the perfect marriage. I think perfect marriages are like orgasms. A lot of them are faked. And I don't think women should perpetuate that myth. When I write about marriage, which I've also written a lot about, I always try and point out to women that marriage suits men much more than it suits women. Married men live longer than single men, have less heart disease and mental problems, whereas single women live longer than married women, have less heart disease and mental problems. So marriage statistics are very low in the West. They're sort of lower than Kim Kardashian's bikini line. And I think it's women getting PMT, pre-monogamy tension. Well, you've got pre-monogamy tension, haven't you? Yes, you don't have... Never married. No, you haven't felt the need to knot your nuptials and you're very, very wise in my view. I mean, love prepares you for marriage the way needlepoint prepares you for round-the-world solo yachting. So just keep the love alive, Julia. I think you're on the right track. Kathy's words remind me of the discussion I had with another great friend of mine, the former deputy leader of the Australian Labor Party, Tanya Plibersek. We talked about the double standards that face women politicians on family life. If you are a woman politician, you really can't win when you are asked the question, do you have children? If you don't have them, then you get criticised for not understanding everyday family life. If you've got them, then you're criticised for neglecting them. Here I asked Tanya about her decision not to stand as Labor leader earlier this year because of her family. Well, I'd been the deputy leader for six years, so I had a pretty good idea of what the leadership entailed. And it's a lot of time on the road. It's a lot of time away. And it just wouldn't have been just wouldn't have been right for our family at that time. And it was funny, Julia, because I had I had people writing columns or sending me emails saying, I'll resign from my job. I'll come and look after your kids. And <laughs> that kind of... Which is heartwarming. But it's, it's gorgeous, but kind of misses the point. I love my job. I love being the member for Sydney. I have loved being a minister and a shadow minister. I've felt so privileged to be the deputy leader of the Labor Party. I have loved every minute of it and I so value the the trust and faith that people put in me. But, you know, I do have to think about my other responsibilities as well and it's not the case that I didn't have a supportive family. They were very supportive. It was about how I felt about the distribution of my time across my work and, and my family and I think 
you know, nobody likes hearing politicians complain about how hard their lives are. So I'm not going to do that. But it is a, it's a seven day a week responsibility as it is. And seven days a week on the road is just not something that I wanted for my kids. And do you think men think about those choices differently, face up to those choices differently? Can you imagine facing that choice as a male politician? I think more so today than a couple of generations ago. We obviously had one of my colleagues from Western Australia who pulled the pin on his parliamentary career in his first term because he said it was having a big impact on his family. And certainly my husband's a senior public servant. He has knocked back job offers to move interstate or move to the federal bureaucracy, you know, all sorts of offers because it would have been incompatible with family life. So I do think modern fathers are more thoughtful about the impact of their work on their kids than my father's generation or our grandparents' generation. And, you know, these these things vary from family to family and between couples. There, there might be many people who wouldn't make the same decision I made. There'd be others who, you know, look, the point is as, as many people as there are, there are that many different ways of organising these competing demands. And with people saying, I'll give up my job, I'll come and look after your kids. <laughs> I, that, I still want them to turn up. I'm still waiting. I, I <laughs> waiting had, for the knock on the door. It hasn't come yet. <laughs> I, I, I had the reverse experience because, of course, I was criticised for not having children. And I do remember a day in Melbourne's West where I let, then lived. I was walking down the street and a woman screamed to a stop in a car, wound down the window, two kids in the back and yelled out the window, if you need to have kids, you can take mine. <laughs> so almost ended up with two very quickly. I want to see policy that benefits women's lives and furthers gender equality. But you don't have to be in politics to affect change. It's equally important in the corporate world. And I got to meet with one of the most respected thought leaders and vocal advocates for diversity and inclusion. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Pamela Hutchinson. She's now the global head at Bloomberg on diversity and inclusion. But when she started out, she was one of only five or six individuals in the UK working in this space. Since that time, things have progressed. But as she tells me here, it's mostly white women who've benefited. I remember you told a, a story when we were together about you being at an event where there was sort of applause because a more diverse board, I think it was, or advisory yes. committee had been created. And yet when you looked at the picture that was unveiled, it was all white women who mm. had been added to the committee. Can you talk to us about your reaction when you saw that? Yeah, this was at an event that I went to several years ago. It was looking at best practices around gender diversity and a particular company stood up and showed a big picture of their board 10 years ago, which were all white men. And they then showed this 
picture of what their board looked like now today, which was a mix of men and women. So it was great gender diversity. But what was very obvious to me and perhaps very obvious to me as a black woman was that the whole board was white. And I asked the question and I said, great that you've made progress on gender diversity, but where do people like me, I don't see myself in there. And the lady said to me, oh, Pamela, that was just the reason the board looks like that is because we were just focused on gender diversity. So I asked her if I wasn't a woman (laughs) and she sort of said, oh, well, we'll get to the black programme later. And I asked the question again, so does that not make me a woman? And it really kind of drove home to me at that point that perhaps the gender agenda wasn't for people that look like me because organisations or some, or that particular organisation, I should say, didn't see me as a woman. Mm. They saw me as a black person first. You know, I feel that it's really important that as we think about gender, that we think about, and I've said this a hundred times before, we think about all of us and not some of us Mm. to move this agenda forward. I also feel that if the gender agenda continues to support one group of women over another group of women, then we haven't really been successful. I've also met some amazing women working and leading in their local communities, including the courageous Yvette Williams, who set up the Justice for Grenfell campaign in the wake of the terrible fire in the Grenfell Tower Block in London. Here she talks to me about being on the end of gendered treatment despite being at the head of the campaign to push the UK government to ensure justice is given to the victims of this tragedy. Do you think there was gender in the reactions that they were looking at you as a woman, as a black woman and, you know, putting the the barriers up to hearing what you had to say? I think it's it's always there. And I've showed you before, you know, a scenario where I meet a government minister who I think at the time just thought, you know, I was a small community person just kind of running around. Luckily, at that meeting, he had somebody in his office, one of his civil servants, who knew that I was the Yvette Williams from the CPS and told him under no certain terms that he should be listening to me. When we left the meeting, we got to the lift, he said, oh, I feel like giving you a hug. Why? And I'm with a bereaved family member who's male. I think he needs the hug a bit more than me. Why haven't you offered him a hug? So kind of it's those boundaries of your gender is the most significant thing that they see and that assumption that, oh, you know, well, she's speaking for Grenfell, you know, she's speaking on really traumatised issues, so she she needs the hug. Mm. So, yeah, you do, your front door is your front door. People, you know, they see you. You know that they, they I think they question us differently to, to men. What do you mean by that, question us differently? They will ask you questions that are gender laden as opposed to sticking to kind of the big political kind of policy issues Mm. how are you as a mother what do you feel about you know the children that kind of thing those questions always kind of crop up as you go along and you just think well you don't interview men like that another woman who's called out gender injustice left right and center is feminist writer and downright crusader Caroline Criodo Perez, famous for her campaigns to get Jane Austen on the British £10 note and the first statue of a woman in the political heart of the UK, London's Parliament Square, 
she had plenty of insight into what makes a winning campaign and how to stand up to your aggressors, apparently stubbornness and rage and coffee. She also shared with me some fascinating findings from her book, Invisible Women, which exposes the gender data gap inherent in everything from medical care, health and safety, the design of workplaces, and the list goes on. Get ready to laugh and be shocked. You'd you'd better tell us the Viagra story. (laughs) So there's two Viagra stories. I'll tell you the female one first because it's shorter. So basically they developed what they called female Viagra. Obviously it's a different compound and it's intended for female libido. And they discovered that it may interact negatively with alcohol. Probably tell where this is going. So they decided to test this, which was the right thing to do. But they tested it in 23 men and two women. Now this is a drug intended for women. women. And if there's one thing that the layperson knows, let alone doctors, it's that women experience alcohol differently to men. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty amazing. I don't know, like, how does something like that happen? So the male Viagra story is actually, I think it sort of encapsulates the whole issue. So for those who don't know how Viagra was discovered, it was discovered by accident in a trial for heart medication. And of course, it was an all-male trial for heart medication and didn't work for that, but they discovered this side effect. And so they then did very quickly after that tests on this and Viagra, as we know, it was put on the market a few years later. And that was, I think, in the late 90s. 2013, a researcher figures out that the way that this active ingredient works could be useful for period pain. And period pain, basically the only commonly available is ibuprofen. And any other drugs that exist often have side effects and just don't necessarily work that well. You know, there's a good reason to try and test this. So he put on this small, got some funding to put on a small scale trial. And the primary hypothesis was that it could provide four hours of continuous pain relief with no side effects compared to a placebo. And that was what they were finding when they started the study. But they ran out of funding, so they couldn't confirm the primary objective. But, you know, they had these, this promising study. And so he went and he tried to get more funding twice from the National Institute of Health in America. And both times was turned down on the basis that it wasn't a public health priority. Ugh. So, you know, erectile dysfunction is a serious issue. No one's going to deny that. But it affects far fewer men than <laughs> period pain affects women. And so, first of all, there's this disparity in, you know, the funding situation to see it as a priority. But second of all, you sort of think if women had been included in the first trial, you know, maybe by this point we would have a period pain medication. Because the, the other question is, you know, why don't pharma companies take it on? Well, it's because you can't make money out of it anymore because it's a generic drug now. Right. So, there's so not a... back then, there was loads of money to be made because it was this new compound and so they could make money of it and they made Viagra. And if there had been women in that trial, they might have discovered period pain solution and then there also would have been money to be made for it in that way. I don't know if it would have happened. They might still have gone for erectile dysfunction. But, you know, it would have had a chance <laughs> at least. Whereas now it's just not a public health priority so the National Institute of Health won't fund it. Criotto Perez has received a huge backlash for campaigning for her beliefs, at the height of her campaigns, getting 50 threats of rape and murder every hour. 
Similarly, Stella Creasy, a British politician I caught up with during the UK election, had to suffer an abusive, targeted campaign entitled Stop Stella for her stellar work to bring women in Northern Ireland the right to an abortion. There was direct, very personalised campaigning against you, which seems to have been informed by some of the campaign techniques used in the United States. And that used a slogan of Stop Stella. What do you think they meant by Stop Stella? When I first got elected, British campaigning tends to be, you know, sometimes quite sedate. You, you get an angry letter in spirally handwriting, maybe within green ink, but that's about it. This is a form of political engagement that we've seen in America in particular. And indeed, we know that the groups doing it had connections to American organisations. It's called the Centre for Bioethical Reform. They turned up with 20-foot posters of my head next to pictures of aborted fetuses, a quite late-term aborted fetuses, saying, your MP is working to make this happen. In my community, they set up a whole campaign about the fact that because I'm, I'm pregnant, they said I was a hypocrite, which I, I didn't quite understand where they were saying to me, right, you need to have an abortion to be consistent, which I thought, given that they would like to claim that their pro-life isn't terribly consistent of them, they have unleashed a whole tirade of people writing to me, telling me that I'm a baby killer, telling me that I must be stopped, that direct action is the only way to stop me killing more babies. They are constantly on my social media, they're in my local community, they are, and they're still doing this stuff, they are harassing me basically, and it's a form of campaign. This is not free speech. I've had over the years lots of debates with people about abortion who feel very strongly about it, because it is a very emotive issue for people. They've never felt the need to intimidate, I mean they may as well put a target on my head in these pictures, and kind of said to people, it's, it's a form of radicalisation, it's you know, go out and stop this person however you can because she's responsible for the deaths of millions of children. It's incredibly inflammatory and it's completely different from having a debate about what you consider to be human rights or what you consider to be a right to choose or at what point you might have a time, all those sorts of things. We haven't had that in British politics before. British politics is becoming incredibly toxic and it has over the last couple of years really taken a turn. I've had rape and death threats before. I did some work on women's representation on our banknotes with a woman called Caroline Crider-Pres, an amazing campaigner, and that was kind of the first time people saw that. It's now become so common that it's not really talked about. It's just seen as part of the job. But I think what was happening to me, and I think particularly the idea that you could target a pregnant woman in that way was for people quite shocking... I want to close with one of the strongest, most resilient and most inspiring women I'm honoured to call a friend. At a special live event at King's College London, we welcomed Hilary Rodham Clinton to talk to us about her experiences and thoughts about the world today and global progress on gender equality. I took her back almost 25 years to her now famous speech delivered as US First Lady in Beijing at a UN meeting, in which she declared... Women's rights are human rights, human rights are women's rights. She told me about the huge reaction worldwide that her words triggered. I remember it very well because it was the fourth United Nations uh, Conference on Women. It was being held in Beijing. And we, of course, in the United States, were sending a delegation. But the UN invited me to come to speak. And I think it's a bit of an understatement to say that... um, There were many in the administration, namely my husband's administration at the time, who were very reluctant to have me go. And members 
uh, very powerful members of Congress as well, because there were several human rights issues that had sprung up at the time between the United States and China with their imprisoning of human rights activists. So it was a a bit of a tug of war back and forth, and I very much wanted to go. The delegation was hoping I would go, and I finally, you know, said, uh, I really want to go, and my husband said, well, I think it's fine if you go, and I said, okay, fine, we're going, then, um, (laughs) and off we went, but I also wanted to go because I thought it was important to push the envelope as far as we could about a lot of the practices, some of them cultural, some of them political, social, some of them legal, that were holding women back in many, many ways. And so in the speech, I spoke a lot about those actions and the impact that they had on girls and women. And then, of course, made the comment about human rights being women's rights and women's rights being human rights. In front of the official delegation that I was speaking, it was simultaneous translation in you know about 50 languages. And so nobody was responding. And if you've ever given a speech in front of a big audience and people are hunched over, they're listening hard, they're not looking at you because they're trying to hear what you're saying, it is so unnerving. I thought, whoa, they don't like me talking about the one-child policy or they don't like me saying that you know, women can't inherit property and the whole list of problems I was uh, discussing. But at the end, they did turn out to really like the speech and like the message of the speech. It was funny because I was criticizing practices, including those of our host, China. So at one point, China turned off the sound in the rest of the convention center, left it on in the room, but turned it off so people outside couldn't hear it. Fast forward, like, I don't know, 22 years, I get a call from a friend of mine in Beijing who says, I'm shopping in this large department store, and they usually play music over the loudspeakers, but they're playing your speech from Beijing in 1995. And I went, that's progress. (laughs) That is progress. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and I look forward to sharing with you more amazing stories from the inspiring women leading global change for gender equality next year. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.